You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. By looking at past elections, political scientists can make predictions about the ways that upcoming elections pan out. But there are a lot of variables to consider. In this podcast, political scientist Stephen Voss shares his thoughts on continuity and change in American electoral politics. I'm Steve Voss. I'm Associate Chair and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Political Science. So based on what you know of past elections and sort of voter behavior in the South, do you think that this election will be different or similar than past ones? For the most part, this election will look like the past ones. And, you know, the difference between how political scientists deal with elections and how journalists deal with elections is journalists tend to write as though each election is a, is a reboot. You know, a clean slate, you get the candidates and voters judge them based on the campaign mistakes they make or uh, which tactics they use, you know, where they run their ads, those sorts of things. Whereas political scientists approach voting in elections as much more of a stable uh, election to election uh, continuity. So, you know, we notice, for example, well, that county's voting Republican. And guess what? It voted Republican four years ago. And it voted Republican four years before that. And for, so, all you know, the journalists don't find that interesting, so they don't write about it. But most of human political behavior is, is very consistent. Now, there's a, there are more systematic changes, though, that hurt the Republicans that we're likely to see. And, and there are two. One is the migration from Central, from Mexico and from Central America that we've not stopped has uh, changed fundamentally parts of the Southwest. New Mexico is becoming a Democratic stronghold where it used to be Republican. Colorado is moving into a Democratic stronghold where it used to be Republican. Uh, and, and the Republicans cannot afford to lose those two states. It makes it much, much harder for them to win presidential elections. There really has not been that sort of geographic change in the Republicans' direction anywhere. The only thing that's helped them is that the states where the Republicans dominate have tended to be more vibrant economically, and they've attracted more people. So over time, the the electoral votes have slid into traditionally Republican states away from the more stagnant economies of the Democratic-controlled states up in the upper Midwest and in the Atlantic coast. So the Republicans have gained from population shift, but they've lost from migration from outside the, the country and, and, and government-driven migration. Regardless of who gets elected, what do you think the public is going to be the most concerned about after the election? Well, right now, both campaigns have been able to uh, chatter about the deficit without really offering any way to address it. Uh, they've been able to offer budgets that make unrealistic assumptions. They've been able to make promises without really reconciling how they deliver on them. This isn't terribly uncommon. The difference is that we're in much worse condition right now in terms of debt than we are in the past elections when they ignored debt. Later on, we'll be feeling the bite of some really painful decisions. And no matter who's president, they're going to be really grumpy at them. And no matter who runs Congress, the public's going to be very grumpy at them. And obviously what I'm implying here is the public has no one to blame but themselves. <laughs> you know, I contrast this year with 1992. 
there was this funny little guy with his funny little haircut and his funny ears who came out of nowhere and he broke all of the rules of American politics as people thought they existed at the time. He didn't run quick ads, he ran 30 minute infomercials and he put them in the wrong stations at the wrong times and what did he present? Not slick images and songs, he presented graphs and tables and he gave the American public a message that boiled down to you people are in big trouble and the other two candidates won't do anything about it. Now briefly he, let, he, he shot up in the polls and he was as strong as the major party candidates. He eventually lost it as people got to know that well okay he's saying the right things but maybe he's not the right guy you know maybe we wouldn't want him actually in the White House. But what happened was he defined a third voter group that the Democrats and the Republicans didn't have or that to the extent they got them, they only got them because the voters were reluctant to be on their side, but they knew they couldn't vote for pro. So there was this big voter block that signaled, look, we care enough about these issues of our, our debt and these issues of, our, uh, of the future of our country so much that you're going to need to come get us. And now they're, now they're fighting. The Democrats and Republicans are fighting over those pro voters. What do we get as a result? The only two years in modern times when the federal government was not in the red, not running up, you know, huge, huge deficits. We could be doing that again as a voting public and demanding that they clean things up. But no, instead we're making them fight over who's going to give us more candy, right? Barack Obama's going to give us more programs. Uh, Mitt Romney's going to give us more tax cuts. And we get to pick which candy we want. Or, or maybe I should say whose drink we're going to drink because the hangover is coming after the election. <clears throat> How do you think that the public could effectively demand that kind of change? Well, there, there are candidates, I guess, that could be doing better in the polls. Uh, you know, Ross Perot came out of nowhere. I don't know why Gary Johnson couldn't come out of nowhere. And maybe people really wouldn't want to vote for him at the end of the process. But for a while, if folks were saying in the polls, you know, until I hear something real, on economics, I might vote for this guy instead of one of those, those mainstream candidates, then they'd come get them. This is the way, you know, in a two-party system like ours, this is the way you get change, which is people drop out, they, they set up their protest votes, uh, or they, they refuse to vote until the parties figure out what they want and, and come get them back. Mitt Romney uh, now has a five-point plan. Okay. And they're very simple points, and not all of them are concrete policies. So you might want to criticize him for the vagueness of his campaign in difficult times. But he didn't start with a five-point plan. He had a very long, very detailed plan, and everybody criticized him for giving too many details. The public couldn't understand it. They, were too, they, they weren't willing to understand it. So he, he, now he praises himself on the stump. He says, look, I've, I've narrowed it down to a five-point plan. You know, it's pr vote for me. I dumped it down the way you insisted I do. You know, I, I, look how responsive I was. Uh, and if you look at the, the policy promises Barack Obama made in his acceptance speech, equally limited in scope, equally vague, to the point of, in some cases, not really being policies. The public's letting them do that. The public is demanding that they dumb it down that way. Uh, so, you know, we get the government we ask for. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of Political Science for making this podcast possible. 